Hey listeners, I'm Robbie, and this is The Breakdown. Welcome to episode 21. If you are new, welcome. And if you've listened before, thank you for coming back. As always, if you like what you hear, please subscribe and consider writing review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help other people find the podcast. And we are so close to 100 reviews. It would totally mean the world to me. This week, I'm bringing you my conversation with casting director Stephanie Clapper. Stephanie is the owner and founder of Stephanie Clapper Casting based in New York City. Her work is frequently seen on Broadway, off-Broadway, regionally, internationally, on television, and on film. Projects she's cast for have won numerous awards, including the Tony, Obie's Drama Desk, Pulitzer Prize, Sundance Audience Award, Cannes Prize du Public, Comic-Con, and Ardios. Recent Broadway credits include Bronx Bombers, A Christmas Story the Musical, Dividing the Estate, and It Ain't Nothing But the Blues. Frequent and longtime collaborators include Primary Stages, Mint Theatre Company, New York Classical Theatre, American Vicarious, The Peccadillo, Voyage Theatre, Masterworks, Resonance Ensemble, Hudson Valley Shakespeare Company, Capital Repertory Theatre, Cincinnati Playhouse, Actors Theatre of Louisville, Adirondack Theatre Festival, Ford's Theatre, Kansas City Rep, The New Theatre, The Philadelphia Orchestra, as well as many more in New York, the regions, and internationally. Stephanie is also a frequent guest teacher and lecturer at many colleges and universities. Listeners, I am super excited to be sharing my conversation with Stephanie. Before I moved to New York, I was told by many actors to make sure that I meet Stephanie Clapper because of the exciting and the important projects that she casts. Since then, Stephanie's become one of my favorite casting directors to come in and share work with, and I was so excited and honored to catch up with her. Stephanie explains that as theater artists, we're inherently problem solvers. So when COVID came, we started to try to solve the problem, come up with solutions and plan for when all of this was going to be over. But we all had to learn that this is out of our hands and to make peace with that. I love the way Stephanie explains this. And I don't know about you, but it's exactly what I needed to hear right now. We cover so much ground from talking about EPAs to first appointments to the final conversations that happen that decide who actually gets the role. Stephanie is so good at what she does and is able to give us truly a backstage tour behind the audition table that really breaks down the audition process. See what I did there? Breaks down? Breakdown? All right, listeners, without further ado, my conversation with the talented, brilliant, and incredibly kind Stephanie Clapper. Stephanie, I am so happy to be to be chatting with you and I'm so happy to be seeing your face. I've missed I've missed so many of the people that we get to share work with, you know, usually on a on a regular basis and I feel like casting directors are the people we see the most, you know, or share work with the most just because, you know, you field so many auditions and theaters and directors that we um we end up just kind of connecting with casting directors more often than any than any other profession in our business and um I've missed you all and I've missed you and I'm so happy to be chatting with you and I'm really grateful that you're uh, on the podcast with me today. I feel the same Robbie and I miss you too cuz we do get to see a lot of each other and I feel that you are a core member of Clapper Repertory Company so it's good to be reunited. <laughs> that is such an honor. That is such an honor. I would love for Clapper Repertory Company to start happening again and for um for it to be an actual theater. You should start a theater with all these with all these <laughs> actors. We'll see. 
It's such a <laughs> it's such a crazy time. I wish in a perfect world we'd be doing this interview in person, but given the times that we're in, I'm um, looking at you through a Zoom box, which is which is the world that we're in these days. But I usually like to start out and talk about you know before COVID, it was what are you up to right now, or you know kind of what's coming across your desk. But it's just such a weird time to be asking that question. So I've kind of enjoyed hearing about what people were up to in March when this all kind of came to a an abrupt halt or maybe not so abrupt but I just want to know I guess what you're up what you were up to in March and then maybe uh what you've been up to if anything lately not that we're expected to be up to anything other than taking care of ourselves right now but yeah that's so interesting March is in some ways so long ago and yet not long ago so I I have to actually really think back I had been working on a musical called Ranked and our creative team was about to fly in to do a backers audition and they were trying to figure out, do they come in? Don't they come in? And we had, it had, it was a very quick turnaround the project. So we had finished casting and there was actually um, a documentary component with it too. So the people from HBO were with us in the room during the auditions. And I remember hearing some of the crew talk about some location uh, shooting they were going to be doing and this COVID thing and what should they do? And I think we just didn't really know. And then it was like March 11th and 12th, I had a client in from Cincy Shakes. And I remember being concerned that he was flying in for the auditions, but we were doing them. And then people started canceling at the last minute. So, and it was all because people were concerned about coming in for COVID. And I remember having my Purell on the table and being very protective of the actors and my client and all of us. And and it was just a very strange time. So that was some of what we had going on. And I think we had wrapped Hudson Valley Shakes, but we were talking about rehearsal starting soon for that and what that was going to look like and a few other projects. Oh, and Mint Theater, we, we were finishing our casting and that was going to be starting soon. So I remember a lot of things in different different states of preparation and happening. And um, I think the common thread that a lot of people had was, oh, we'll be gone for two weeks and everything will be fine and we'll all be back. And I remember my team and I getting ready to close up the office on the 13th. And I, I said, you know, make sure you take things with you so we have things, but we'll be back. So it'll be okay. So it was a very much that that sense of things. I don't think any of us in our wildest dreams could have expected life to take the turn it's taken. Yeah. I was actually just thinking about, oh, you know, what was I doing? And I was doing a play in New York that you cast, Paradise Lost, that we thankfully got to close on March 1st. So we, I feel lucky that we got to end our show on our own terms and and in Mm -hmm. our own time. But, you know, they kind of like limited our interaction with, with everyone as it, as it slowly came to a halt. It just was such a weird, it was such a weird time. And then, and then so many shows didn't get to close on their own, on their own terms, which is sad. And I think, and I think sad is, is like the, a great word because there's been such a lack of closure. And I think that as all of us who participate in this profession in different ways, one of the unifying things is we're so used to generating work or creating things and, and working together to make more things happen or be in the process of something that that was, I think one of the things that was such a difficult shift was it's out of all of our hands. 
Mm-hmm. Like we could, we could do as much as we want and try to figure things out and everybody's got their inner motor trying to create, but the reality is the reality. Mm-hmm. And I think that's been something that, that has been a very interesting journey for all of us to, to work in our own way and figure out how to make peace with that and what that means. Yeah. I know, in our own way and, wh- and what that means. And I think we're kind of going through the phases and the stages of, mm-hmm. of what that means for us. So I'm curious how the th- theater scene and maybe some of the producers and people you work with have been reacting to this. Like, I remember there was one point where, you know, everything had closed down in March. Then some auditions were starting to happen again for like maybe fall theater things or or winter theater things. And we were like, oh, you know, it's we're going to be back on the other side of it. This is all from my perspective. And then that all kind of stopped, you know, once we realized we actually don't know. Has it has that been for you? Have people kind of tried to be like, when are we starting? How I guess, does that make sense? No, it does. I think with my clients, there was we were doing a lot of talking and I think the agreement was not to put anybody in any danger. Mm-hmm. And that meant really being mindful of what circumstances were. And a lot of my clients, it was interesting, the connective was in each case, or in many cases, they all had like a plan A, B, C, and D. If we get the okay, this can happen. If we don't, let's talk about a, a a season starting around the holidays. What would that be? Maybe that would be a one-person Christmas carol. So there were a lot of different scenarios. And I think at first I was very hopeful and excited and yes, there will be things to do. And it was like dominoes where you'd see slowly the domino would just drop, 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 drop. And I remember there was a period where it was just like one call after the other of, of that happening. And that was very, very difficult to deal with. Yeah. Um, the flip, the sort of turning the corner has been like the musical ranked with with the documentary, being very in touch with those creative people and saying, well, what can we do? Let's see if we can get some artistry to record the song and let's start doing something online to, to build the life up. And then I connected them to a high school in the Bronx that's back in session and they want to do the show and they're going to do it virtually. And the rank team has put out a video about how to do a musical on Zoom. And they got, um, they raised some money and the Department of Education is is behind it. So it's sort of like added a different angle to that show that's been wonderful. So in a sense, I'm their casting person, but I've been trying to help them to, to look in new ways. And then another musical that I worked on, Grace, which was supposed to be premiering at the Humana Festival in Louisville, that too didn't happen. I love those creative, that creative team too. So we've been talking about what are some ways that show can continue its life and what could we do in that way? And then the lucky star, another show that was supposed to be at 59 59th, we've talked about, well, can that be audio theater? Can that be audible? Can that be something else? So I've been enjoying my role of continuing to think out of the box, which I do in casting, but I'm trying to think about it in a bigger picture. And it's because of my love of the projects and the creative teams and the people involved in it and wanting it to to have a life. I love that. I love that casting directors think in such out of the box specific, you know, you give a menu of different options to to directors and you have really have to use your creative brain to be doing that. And now I love that you're kind of just shifting and thinking about it and, you know, great, but how can we, you know, think out of the box in all of these other ways? It seems like you're probably using a lot of the same skills, but just in a different way. Well, I think what I was frustrated with is I could solve problems because isn't casting about problem solving. 
and coming up with answers. And I was getting very frustrated because I wasn't coming up with the answer. And, and I feel like I'm, I'm getting back on track to who I like to be and what I do. Mm, I love that. I want to back up a little bit and I want to, I do want to hear briefly about your path, about how you, you got to where you are. Something that's been very cool is listeners reaching out and, and loving, you know, hearing how the people that are, you know, certainly at the top of their game, how they, how they got to where they are. And I think casting is such an interesting business because there isn't, you know, I don't think, first of all, anyone decided when they were 11 years old, they wanted to be a casting director. I think it's kind of a position, a, a job that you kind of discover um, is what I've been hearing from all the other chats that I've been having. And then that led you to your own office. And when I was coming out of grad school at the Old Globe, a couple of the actors who had come out there would say to me, oh, when you get to New York, you got you to gotta meet Stephanie Clapper. You got to be auditioning for Stephanie Clapper. And you were just a name that was always coming up just because of the regional theaters you cast are, are some incredible, incredible regional stuff and some very cool, interesting New York stuff that, that you get to do. And you, you kind of have your, your hand in all of it. So you were definitely someone that I was told to look out for. And I know other people feel that way as well. So I want to know how you got there, how you eventually ended up with your own office, which I think is just very, very cool. Well, thank you. Casting for me was truly an accidental career. And um, I grew up in Greenwich Village. My parents, by day, were professionals. And my dad really wanted to be a, a professional clarinetist. And, and every moment that he wasn't working, doing his work work, he was, he was playing music. And, and mm. I grew up with a house filled with that. And my mom, also professional by day, picked up the harp during that time. And, and um, so both my parents filled the house with music. And I have a younger brother who, who was very visually, is, is a, a visual artist. But I played the flute. That was my thing. I thought I was going to be a professional musician. And I went to music and art high school when it was up on 135th Street and Convent Avenue. And um, I was known as, as Stephanie the flutist. And when it came time to apply to colleges, I applied to conservatories. And I had a really great job after school with a bunch of friends working for this filmmaker who had his own archive. And we would do the clippings for the archive. And um, I was very, um, I watched movies all the time when I wasn't practicing. And I would talk to him and he, he said, you have a crazy recall for movies and actors. Have you ever thought of film school? And I hadn't even heard of film school, but that sounded like fun. So although I was auditioning for all these uh, music conservatories, I, I thought, okay, I'll, I'll try for some film schools. And I, um, I did, I, I, um, applied to NYU. I applied and I applied to SUNY purchase and, um, I didn't get into NYU, but that was because of my SAT scores. And I wrote a very long letter to them about how can you judge art by SAT scores? Absolutely. <laughs> and the head of the program wrote back to me and said, that's our criteria. And I said, okay, but I got into SUNY purchase, which was both wonderful and crazy because I had never made a movie, but I had a journal of about over a hundred film reviews I had written. And so they accepted me based on that and uh, said, make some movies over the summer. And that's that I went to purchase and purchase was really an interesting time because I, I didn't realize the people in the conservatory with me ate slept, drank, lived movies all the time. That's really all they wanted to do with their lives. And I had many different interests and still wanted to continue my music. 
And um, film school was really not about learning. It was about doing because many of the people in the department had been doing it their whole lives. And I was only one of two women in the department. And I had never encountered that before. And it shouldn't have been an issue, but it, it was in some ways. And um, after two years in the department, I, I did a lot of soul searching and I really had to think long and hard about what I wanted to do. And I came home uh, on summer break during my sophomore year and um, was talking to my father about just how miserable I was. And he said, you know, you're really more of a theater person. Why don't you go over to the 13th Street Theater and see if they have something for you to do? And I literally walked into the 13th Street Theater and Edith O'Hara, who just died a few weeks ago at 103, was there. And she was like the queen of the building. And um, I asked her if she needed any help. And she said, yeah, we need a stage manager. And I said, oh, okay. And I had never done that before. And she goes, no, we need a stage manager now. So um, she sent me upstairs and I got to learn how to be a stage manager on the job. And it was a play that Norman Mailer had written and his wife at the time was in. But that was my first job in theater. Great first opportunity. I got back to purchase, decided to take a break from film and just take classes and whatever I was interested in. And uh, one of the professors I met was a man named Jay Novick, who uh, was starting a new program called Drama Studies. And he invited me to be part of the program and help pilot it. And I said, well, I think I'm interested in directing and in doing some work in theater. And he said, great, create the program. And uh, Jay, in his other life, was a very well-known critic for the Village Voice at the time and was just a terrific professor. And then he and another professor, Philippa Wheel, really created a program that was the perfect fit for people like me who, who had many interests and wanted to create and find our way and find our place. So that was a good time to transition from the film department into drama studies and do that. Mm. And I did create this great um, directing program in drama studies and had wonderful internships. I got to work at the public theater and I was one of Lee Brewer's assistants on The Tempest in Central Park with Raul Julia. Oh, cool. um, and then my senior year on Christmas break, my uh, flute teacher, because I was still taking flute, uh, said my boyfriend's written a new show and they need somebody to turn pages for the pianist. Would you be interested? And I said, sure. And that turned out to actually be the workshop of Nine the Musical that at that point was at the New Amsterdam Roof. And I, although I had grown up going to Broadway, my parents were really great about taking me to see shows. I wasn't terribly interested in Broadway in any way. I just, so, so here I was in this life-changing, extraordinary circumstance. And I had heard of Tommy Toon, but I didn't really know who he was. And it was, it was really being thrust into a magical world. And um, it was quite life-changing. And then I went back to school, finished my degree. And then probably two or three days after, um, after I graduated, I was in the village walking down the street and I ran into one of the producers of Nine and we were talking and I had been in touch with him and he asked me what I was up to. And I said, I was going off to Europe. I had um, planned with a friend to go to different festivals around Europe for several months and just sort of create my own graduate program. And he said, but do you have a job? And I said, no, I don't, I, I'm going away. I, I'm just going to Europe. That's what I'm doing. And he kept asking me if I had a job. And I finally said, why do you have one for me? And he said, yes, I do. And I said, but I'm going to Europe. And he said, have a good time. Go, enjoy. And when you come back, there'll be a job waiting for you. So wow. my whole 
my whole time in Europe, I would send them postcards. And there was a big number in nine called the Grand Canal. So I made sure to go to Venice and get lots of postcards of the Grand Canal and send them to the producers the whole time. So they knew I was thinking about them. Mm-hmm. And I came back and I did have a job for two and a half years. And they went from being the hottest Broadway office to being the most bankrupt Broadway office, which was a great lesson in just wow. this business and life and what happens. And um, then after that, I worked for um, a theatrical advertising company because I thought as a director, and I was always directing, even though I was their assistant by day, I was directing all the rest of the time. But I thought that in order to learn how to promote my own shows, it would be good to know about advertising too. But that person was pretty crazy. So after six months working for them, I um, went back to France as a, as a guest of the French government and went back to the Avignon Theater Festival. And Philippa, uh-huh. my other mentor at Purchase, um, was very, um, very important during that time, too. So, um, so I did that because modern French drama was sort of the other thing I was into while at school. And mm-hmm. got my degree in that and then came back and decided to freelance so I production managed I stage managed I worked for a set designer um, and one night I was um, going I guess I was visiting my parents and I ran into this director who lived in their building Tony McKay who um, has was a very important part of Carnegie Mellon after the fact he, he taught there for many years um, but Tony asked me what I was up to and I told him what I was doing as a director and I happened to have my resume and I gave it to him and a week later, he called me and said, there's a small theater and they were looking for somebody to handle their casting and I might be a good fit and should check it out. So I uh, called the artistic director and uh, he granted me an interview. He made me wait an hour once I got there and and uh, was very nasty to me. And, and we this is even before we started talking. And then when we were talking, he, he said, I knew nothing. Who did I think I was and why was I there? And I said, I am absolutely qualified to do this job. And, and for me, it was being a director, learning about actors and widening my world. So I had more people that I knew to, that I could work with. And he yelled at me and I yelled back at him and I said, I was the person for the job and he should give me a chance. And he said, fine. And he threw the script at me and he went on vacation. And that was my first casting job. Wow. Um, and it was a Galt McDermott musical called The Special. And the show was not great, but it was a great first experience. And the reviews were what one would expect, except one review actually said they liked the casting very much. And as it turns out, that was Jay Novick from The Village Voice, who complimented my very first casting job. And wow. I really thought for many years it was, it was just another job amongst the many jobs I was doing at once. I was still doing four or five jobs simultaneously because this little casting job wasn't paying the bills by itself. But I started getting other people asking me to cast for them. And this artistic director, although wonderful at giving me a break and could sometimes be a really terrific person, was still not a very nice person overall and could be quite hurtful. And one day a friend of mine got felt bad for me because I would cry before every job because this guy was just so mean to me. And they said, look, I have some office space available. Why don't you do what you're doing, but just come on over to my space and do it. And I had never thought of that before. So um, I thought, well, that sounds like a great idea. But still, casting was just one component of the bigger picture of what I was doing. And I did that for a while. And then I realized that I really loved it. And I called a casting person I knew named Leonard Finger, who had worked at 1501 Broadway in the same building I had done. I had been the assistant for the producers of Nine. And Leonard 
at that time, people would just pop in each other's offices and everybody would visit each other. It was like 1501 Broadway was like a big college dorm. And Leonard and I were friendly, but not great friends at that point. But I called him and said, I think I want to pursue this professionally. Would you share some of your knowledge with me? He said, well, I'll do better than that. I, I need an associate. Would you like to come and work with me and still do your jobs, but you can also learn with me? So I, I still maintained my office, but Leonard and I worked together and he and I did some film and TV together for a number of years. And I really credit him with, with taking me under his wing and teaching me more properly how to do this job. And um, here I am. Yeah, it seems like such a, a trade that you learn by doing or by apprenticing or uh, assisting or you know being an associate. And then when did, I'm so interested that you have your own office. I just think it's, it's very, it's very cool. And, and how did, and when did it, when did that happen? When were you, when did you take that leap and kind of go off on your own? Well, it sort of happened by, I mean, when my friend said, you seem so sad or miserable working for the theater because the office where I cast out was at the theater. So it really started when my friend offered me a space to do things. Oh, wow. So, and I guess during the Leonard Finger years, I had my own business. But I think after Leonard and I went in separate directions, he he left the country to do pursue other pursuits and interests he had. Um, that was probably when I became a more formal author. Yeah. Oh, very cool. And then I would say, actually, interestingly, although I had been doing it for a number of years before, I feel like 9-11 was a big turning point for me in, in self-examination and trying to decide if this was a, a profession I wanted to stay with, if I served, if there was a purpose in doing it or if it was frivolous. And I, I came out on the other side feeling that it was something that was really important to me and, and did serve a purpose. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like, I feel like that moment was big for a lot of people as, as I think, as I think this moment is for, mm -hmm. you know, it's not, it's very different than 9-11, but not so different in that we're all kind of re-evaluating, you know, if this is the path we want to continue on, how we would change things and um, going forward. But Well, in survival, I think there was a question about survival and what life meant and where it would go. And, and you're right. I think right now we're, we're really thinking about what that means now and moving forward. Yeah. The rules have changed. Absolutely. You do what you do so well. I am not just saying that. You're so good at what you do. You Thank are you. a wonderful person to to come in and share work with. And some, you know, more often than not, actors are nervous or we're intimidated or we don't know, you know, what the room is going to be like. But when I talk to other actors, we always say, oh my gosh, doesn't Stephanie make you feel so warm and welcome in the room? You either bring up like another show that we've worked on with you or or something that we've done or highlight something on our resume that just makes us feel so good and so relaxed. And I think it's obvious that when we are relaxed, we're going to do better work and then it in turn makes your work easier. So I'm just interested in your process, I guess. And let me get more specific. When you are making lists of actors to come in for a, a specific project, right? Like you have met with the producer or the, and the director, and maybe you've had some initial conversations about, you know, what they're thinking, but then I guess take it from there. Like you take, you know, what their ideas are, but then you give them, you want to give them some other options. And then how do you kind of put together that list of, I, I don't even know, 20 people to come in for a role or, or something like that. I just, I just find it so um, interesting. 
No, it's it's fun. I think that that goes back to the problem solving thing we were talking about. I think that it's so helpful to have the information that the team gives me. And I'm fortunate that I, my, my team, I have wonderful assistants and, I, and we collaborate together in a way that I cherish. So I think the lists come out of first, what are the obvious things and the obvious people? And then sort of from there, it goes into people who have aspects of what has been described and maybe surprising in other ways, but are also great fits. And I think it just builds and builds and builds. It's sort of like the game word search. You know how you have like you you come up with the easy words first, but then you shift letters around and then you find other words through it. I think casting lists are a lot like that. Yeah. And so you have the people that you know that you've seen audition for other things or that you've cast before that you've seen in shows. And then you also get submissions or probably some phone calls from agents or managers saying, oh, you know, I think my client would be would be good for that. I mean, and then you also are taking people from EPAs and, Mm -hmm. and I guess, do you like with the, with the agent and manager relationship thing, do you have, what are those conversations like? Do you usually like trust them? You know, if someone calls and says, Oh, you got to see my client. Like what's, um, I, I don't know. Like, I always just wonder how that works. Like if it's something you've never, something you've never seen before or, Well, to me, the phone calls are so much fun and the pitches are fun. And that's why I sort of miss how more has gone on um, email because it's not the same relationship, Mm. but there's something about the phone call pitch. And if it's, you know, there's certain agents who I feel our taste is in line with each other, or we've known each other a long time. They know people I respond to. So, or, or it could be a great reminder of somebody I haven't thought about in a while. So I really enjoy those conversations and they're interested in hearing what we're looking for. And I feel like that's part of the collaboration. Yeah. So to me, that that's, that's where it's tremendous fun. And if we know each other and trust each other's taste, then I feel like it's easier to take that next step. If I don't know them as well, or I don't know the client or trust their taste, I'll want to see something of the, of the actor's work, either a reel or meet the actor ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Right. So let's let's talk a little bit more about the audition room. So this is such a hard um, it's such a hard question to ask, but you know when an actor comes in, let's say for a first appointment, what are some of the things that you expect? I mean, I guess what does preparation mean to you? You know, a lot of people have questions about should I be memorized or or what are you expecting in a like a good first a, a good first appointment when the director or the writer is in the room. Some of these are such obvious things, and yet one would be surprised that they don't always happen. And I'm told by my friends who do TV that different they have different issues. But for me, who, who does theater, sometimes people come in and haven't read the script, and we can usually tell. And I remember many years ago having a very well-known um, playwright in the room, and somebody said they hadn't read this playwright's script, and he was right there, and a little piece of me died with that actor. So, so I really think that you could have a day, a week, a month. Please, oh, please read the script and be prepared and know your work. Memorized or not memorized, I think everybody's comfort level is different. I think the theater, even if you are memorized, it's good to still hold your sides. I think mm-hmm. that's, that's a good, good hint. And then things like know who the team is. You don't have to know them by face, but have the information. Know who the director is. Know who the author is. And know the dates. I've had people come in and do really beautifully at the audition and, and are invited for callbacks and sometimes even come to the callback 
only for me to be told that they're not available for the job. And people don't always realize the damage that causes because my client falls in love with the actor and then the actor says, sorry, can't do it, which is different than a conflicting job coming up. That that mm-hmm. breaks my client's heart too, but at least that's a different situation. But if, if they come in and, and they've known that their family member's getting married or having a significant event and then they can't do it or they suppose the dates can be changed for their needs, that's a problem. And it makes my job twice as hard because my client has fallen in love, now has to fall out of love, only to fall in love again. Mm-hmm. And I think actors are always told, oh, there's so many people who do what you do, good luck. But the fact is, when it's the right fit of actor and material, there's only one, maybe two. But I don't think people understand just when that magic strikes, that magic strikes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's like dating, right? I had someone on the podcast talk about how that I'd never thought about that, like casting or, you know, finding the right actor in a role. It is a a little bit like dating because you're expecting the audience to spend two and a half hours you know, watching that person on stage. So Mm -hmm. there is like that relationship and importance that can't be recreated when you find someone that you actually really, really enjoy in the role. This is always like also, (laughs) I'm asking you all the hard questions, but I'm just, you know, it's just like some stuff that I've been ruminating on. You know, after the callbacks and, you know, maybe you've had, you know, around five people or something for, for, you know, that have come back for a certain role. And I know that this is different based on every you know project that you've cast, or or maybe you can think of an example. Or, but what are the um what are the kinds of conversations that take place when they're deciding between one of three or five actors? What what puts someone ahead? You know, I, I've always found when you're going for a callback or something, you know, you see, you know, there's a few other people, but what are the kinds of things if there if there are any general things? or specific things that you feel like maybe that have put certain people ahead or that, or that help certain people just grab those roles? I think being a good company member, you know, somebody who's going to be flexible and work well with others. Sounds so, once again, sounds so obvious. And yet it's, I think it's somebody who could be inclusive in their process Mm -hmm. uh, and who's on the same page with the director and how they work. Like that's really, really important. I think Mm. that, with musical, new musicals, as in new plays, actors who have a facility and flexibility with change and can do that in a way that, that makes it seem effortless, that they're all there for the same project and process is really important. And I think there's some people who do that better than others. Um, I think that's really important. Yeah, absolutely. What about, I, I want to touch on EPAs quickly because it's... Um, they have such a bad reputation. <laughs> um, you know, I feel like for everyone, sometimes you talk to people and I'm thinking off the record and people are like, oh, EPAs, I have to, you know, go sit and watch EPAs. And then actors are like, oh, I, you know, should I even go to the EPA? Because I just feel like they, I'll never get, I'll never get something from an EPA. But I have talked to many friends who are like, oh, I got, you know, X, Y, and Z because I went to the EPA. I just wonder like, is what you're looking for different in those auditions? I think that what I love out of an EPA is the discoveries that I've made over the years. And it's really people show up with just ready to go. And mm-hmm. I think the problems with EPAs, and I, I've always hoped there's a better solution that we could all come up with. I think part of it is 
because they're required and because anyone with an equity card can go, what happens is not everybody is suitable. Mm. So some people show up because they need to check off their list that they did something as an actor for that day. And whether it's the right thing or the wrong thing, it's about meeting people. And I appreciate that, but we're there because we're, once again, going back to the problem solving, we're looking for something mm. that for our client. Um, and we do love to meet people, and that's what makes us all special and valuable. The more people we know, the more people we can offer. But sometimes people come in who really aren't prepared, who you know, we're looking for, let's say, a comedic monologue. They don't have one. They feel like doing Shakespeare. But I'm looking for a contemporary comedic monologue. But they yeah. could come in and do their work because they're entitled to do that. But that doesn't really solve what I need. So I think that's where there's some frustration. Mm-hmm. Or people will think, well, it's this big contract and it's already cast, so why should I even bother showing up? And then we sit in an empty room for days because people think they shouldn't show up when we're there because we do want to see people. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that they're a wonderful opportunity to get to to meet people and make discoveries and for people to to flex their muscles in positive ways that are material appropriate. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really important is making sure that it's something you're right for and and that you're doing material that would be similar to the show because you don't want to waste anybody's time. And I think sometimes EPAs, if you go in and, well, if you're bad, that's obvious, but if you're clearly doing something else, you're there just to be there, it can kind of have almost an adverse effect. Yeah. You know? And I think I got mean for a while. I forget what, what the site was that was kind of posting mean things about people and, and EPAs and stuff. And I think like, I think we have to go back to remembering that we're all a community that's here for the same reason, which is to create wonderful things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is another kind of, this is a specific question, but, you know, say you're an actor and you're represented and you have an agent and you see, you see an EPA or you, or you hear that, you know, a certain theater is doing, is doing a show that you would be great for and you would be considered for. Do you go to the EPA or do you like, you know, email your agent like, Hey, I'd really love to get in, in for this and, and kind of hope that you get an appointment or there's always kind of a dance sometimes about, well, I, I don't know if I should just go to the EPA, but, but I do have the representation. So maybe I'll get the appointment. I don't know. Does anything, any thoughts come up for you? Well, it depends on the relationship you have with the casting person too, because sometimes you can have your agent check in with the casting person Mm -hmm. and say, Robbie's really interested in this project. What do you think? Is there a chance that you'd be able to see him or do you think it's better that he show up at the EPA? Yeah. And it may be something where I know the client is going to be at the EPA with me and he may say, you know, I don't want to see that person, but then you're there and then they change their mind. So I think it's, it's very much a, a um, project to project basis. Yeah. And, and based on, you know, have you been in for that casting director before, you know, all of those things, it would be silly of me to not ask about self tapes because they are here and they've been here. They're here to stay. And my feeling is that because so many people have been watching self-tapes either like when COVID first started and we were trying to still go along as we could or, or because self-tapes, I think are going to, more people are watching them, more people are making them. Maybe I think, I think more directors will feel more comfortable casting people off of tapes because they've, 
they are doing it just more just because they have to be. So I just, I, I assume that tapes will be here to stay and maybe even more prevalent in the future. What do you have to say about self tapes? I mean, is there any, I mean, obviously having like good equipment or good or good lighting nowadays, iPhones are like, they, they record with great quality, but, but maybe what are some do's or don'ts about self tapes that maybe, um, you've either been thinking about as maybe you've been watching more or you've always just kind of felt like, oh, I just wish I could tell actors this about self-tapes, you know? I, I don't know if anything, if that sparks anything for you. I think one of the things I have to acknowledge is I didn't realize how difficult they were to do. I think I always thought that a self-tape maybe was easier in some ways than coming into the room. And what I've learned is that I think it's easier when an actor could come into the room and do their work and, and immediately get a, a vibe off the people they're auditioning for. So I now appreciate in a different way, the challenges of self-taping. Mm. And I think that it it's, there's a whole other level of wanting it to be a particular way and the perfection we seek in our work in a different way. And, and so I feel that I have a, I've always had a level of empathy for actors self-taping, but now it's a whole other level of it because I understand it differently just because of, of the circumstances we're in. So I think that what I'm finding on our side is as casting people is because we're understanding more of the challenges, it's making us more accepting of, you know, you do the best you can with your lighting. You know the tools you need for lighting and sound and camera. Um, you do the best you can with a neutral background, but I think that people are just understanding the constraints and, and all learning together how to make them better. That's my words of wisdom about self-taping or yes, they're here to stay. And, and I think that it's a great first date to go back to the dating analogy. And then hopefully we can have more time to do adjustments or maybe a callback on some mode like this. I just had my first Zoom or it wasn't Zoom. It was Ecocast callback with, um, <laughs> it was so bizarre. It was like very fun, but it's just, it's just a different, you know, video interface with, you know, different boxes and people. And then someone the can, can room and the waiting room is very weird. Cause you're like just standing in front of your screen, just waiting for, you know, all the faces to pop up and, mm -hmm. um, it's just totally, it's totally new, new thing, but, you know, and so antithetical to what we do as theater artists, you mm -hmm. know, we are like, we are in theater because there's that like being in the same room together. And, and like you said, getting a vibe off of someone and just like kind of digging in and, you know, with the work and, and you can still do that, but it's, it's for sure not the same. And it's a very, it's a very different experience. Yeah. I think that's been my big goal in both auditions that have been electronic and even the teaching I've been doing is how do we create the feeling of all being in the same room together, even mm -hmm. though we're not. And that's something I'm, I'm trying to really work on establishing. I think everyone is trying to figure that yeah. out. Yeah. This has been something that I haven't been asking everyone, but I think it's really important, but networking is such a, it's such a weird, like everyone kind of has this weird kind of relationship with that word, right? Sometimes it can be, it can feel icky or it can feel, um, I don't know, people can just say, oh, I'm just not good at, I'm just not good at it. But really it's just like keeping in touch with people and keeping like um, continuing your relationships with, with people. How do you find, and everyone does it in our business. I mean, like it's been helpful to talk on the podcast because directors keep in touch with producers and casting directors keep in touch with directors and 
I think to put a label on it is what makes it kind of feel not so great sometimes. But but I guess what do you have to say about it? I mean, it's an important it's it's an important part of everyone's business, but especially our business. And maybe how do you like to be kept in touch with? How do you like to keep in touch with people? Well, first of all, I guess the to go back to networking seems to have such an insincere connotation. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I think that there's something about networking that there's a there's like an end game and a goal. And and you're right. We all that is part of our business and part of what it is. But I think when it feels like there's an agenda and it feels like the person you're connecting with feels used, then it's not so great. Hmm. But, I, but I think that if if one is connecting from a place of sincerity and inquisitiveness, and because you're right, we all do need to stay in touch with each other. I think that for me, that tends to be a better way to do things because then I don't feel so. Like I could be taken advantage of in a way or used or, or felt like, oh, you could only do something for me or I wouldn't be calling you. So yeah, I think that has a lot to do with it. Yeah. So I think that like, I enjoy hearing from people I know or people coming up and it used to be through ma- snail mail because I really enjoy getting mail. Now, you know, that doesn't work so great. So it's going to be more through, through email, I think, that things are going to happen. So I, I've just made my peace with that. Yeah. It's going to be... Um... It's going to be interesting how that how that all changes, and I think mail will be hopefully become safe become safe again <laughs> someday. I just want to finish by asking, you know, when you were when you got out of purchase and you got back from Europe and you were that twenty something Stephanie that was in the business, and and I love I loved actually hearing about what you were doing early on, because I think it's kind of all those collective experiences and different hands of the business, being a stage manager, working with a designer that's probably made you an even better casting director because you kind of understand all, all different parts of the process. But what do you wish you could tell yourself then about the business specifically? Um, maybe less about like the artistry or the creative process, but like our industry or, or business or the way things work, you know, it's hard to kind of put a finger on it because sometimes, you know, I, I'm a believer and you kind of have to learn things in your own way and at your own time. But I just wonder if there's, if there's something that jumps out to you as something that you kind of wish you knew, or you wish you could have understood, understood better at that time when, when you were early on. That's a really tough question because I didn't, I think I spent so much time not knowing exactly what I wanted to do and saying yes to things that sounded really interesting to me. So I think maybe I would have told myself to save more money. (laughs) Hey, that is a very good thing to tell your younger self. I I think that I just, I was living so paycheck to paycheck that there really was no way to save. And that's why I was doing so many jobs. And I think that um, I wish I had listened to my grandmother who said, always put aside like X amount of money, no matter what you're making to do that. So I think that that would have been a good a good lesson to to hear. I think that um, I went with the flow and didn't know that going with the flow really is the way this business goes. And I think that's something that I've learned over time, and that everything can feel so personal and and be taken to heart so much. And and I'm I think that over time I've learned how to manage that a little better too. Yeah, absolutely. I think. I think that's important. And I, um, I I think money is important. I think saving money, especially when you're making money, because, c- you know, as an actor or, 
or as a casting director, you maybe if you have a savings, then that can allow you to do a job that maybe is going to be really artistically soul fulfilling, but maybe not pay the bills as much. So it can allow you to have a little bit more flexibility and, or maybe you, you can take that casting internship that maybe mm-hmm. um, doesn't, you know, totally pay the bills all the time. So I, I think that's, I think that's really important, um, especially for, for all of us to hear, not even younger actors. Yeah, I guess. And also I, I just, a footnote occurred to me, which is I feel that when I was coming up in the business, people didn't feel they could have families and do the business. And when I, chose to do that I it was sort of at a time when people didn't think that was possible so I think I spent a lot of time working on balancing all of my lives together too and I'm thankful I did um, but I'm, I'm glad I know and knew it was possible but I think now it's more possible than it was when I was starting out I love I love that you said that I I, I hope and think that is more of the reality that we can be more that people can have families. I think, I think more people like you just saying it, who are, um, who are really doing it and, and are successful both professionally and, and have a family. And so I think more people that we hear like from you saying that it's, it really means a lot. Cause I, I definitely think that that's definitely a stigma about the business that we're in. Mm-hmm. Stephanie, I am so grateful that you chatted with me today on this podcast. You've, you've always been on my list and, and I'm, I couldn't think of someone that I'm more happy to be connecting with because we haven't in such a long time. And, um, and I, I think you're so good at what you do. And, and I, I also just like wanted to mention today, I was like thinking about you and, you know, before last night and thinking, preparing for the interview. And I just was thinking, you know, I'm so, I feel so grateful. I've auditioned for Stephanie so many times, but I was thinking, oh, I, I feel like, I don't know that I've booked many jobs. <laughs> like I haven't actually gotten the jobs but then I was thinking, no, Stephanie, when I, I did Paradise Lost this winter, and that was such a funny process because they lost an actor. And I just want to share the story quickly because it's like, you know, I had done a show with Allison Frazier at the Cape Playhouse. And then she had said to the director, oh, you should call Robbie. And then when my agent called me, like kind of with the appointment, she was like, I just was talking to Stephanie Clapper. And she said she thinks you're so right for this role. And she's really not even um, sending anyone else to the director that uh, that day. And I think I was the only one because she just she just has such confidence in you or, or like said something really kind that you had said to, to my agent. And um, and I just was like, you know, even though maybe I hadn't booked other jobs, it kind of led indirectly to to getting this one. And you also vouching for me with the director because um, you'd see my work. And so I really appreciate that and think that this business has so many back roads and inroads and, and weird stories like that. And that's really actually how it happens. So um, I appreciate that. And, and thank you. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you. This has been a wonderful way to spend time. Thank you, Robbie. You wonderful. Oh, good. Well, thank you so much. And um, hopefully we will catch up again soon. For more information on the podcast and our guests, visit thebreakdownpodcast.com. And connect with us. Let us know you're listening on Facebook and Instagram at The Breakdown with Robbie. And again, if you like what you heard, help spread the word. And make sure to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Thank you so much for listening. And stay tuned for another episode of The Breakdown.